0: Uh, if you are in this industry, you probably don't need to hear an introduction of Ron. He, he's well-known, but I'm going to try to do a short one. He's actually, uh, Ron is the host of the radio show slash podcast, The Soul of Enterprise. He's a speaker, an author, an educator. He's been in accounting today's top 100 most influential. Uh, he can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's about 18 years, and, and he's been uh, top 10 most influential for about the last 10 years. He's in the CPA Practice Advisor Hall of Fame. He's a LinkedIn influencer and probably most known for uh, his work uh, with his firm, Verisage, where their mission is to get rid of the timesheet, get rid of hourly billing and the timesheet. So, Ron, welcome to the Unique CPA. Thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me, Randy. All right. Did I I miss anything on my intro? I tried to keep it short.
1: No, no. The one I always get questions about is tell me about Disney University because that's <laughs> I usually put that as my postgraduate education and it was some of the best education I've ever had
0: well I actually did see that what now I'm gonna have to ask you what is Disney University what is that about
1: Disney has a, a ever since uh, Walt started Disneyland in 55 they created a Disney University and they put all their or their cast members through it as they call their team it's it's a phenomenal institution and they opened it up sometime I want to say in the eighties or maybe nineties to the public and started offering, you know, classes on their approach to quality service, their approach to human resources, employee retention, those types of things. And I went as a journalist, I was uh, writing a column uh, at the time for Harcourt brace and they comp me to go to their, uh, the Disney approach to customer service, total quality service. And it was a three and a half day course and they put you up and it's all inclusive. There was a hotel that they stick you stayed at right there next to the Institute's campus. And it was three and a half days. They took you backstage to a lot of different places that the public never gets to see. This was in Walt Disney world, underground, all the tunnels, right. all that kind of stuff It was the best education I've ever had. All right. That's pretty cool. I didn't know that that existed. If if people are interested, I, on my LinkedIn, you mentioned I'm a LinkedIn influencer. If you go to that page, I have over a hundred articles. There's a three part series that I wrote for Harcourt uh, as a result of going uh, called earning my mouse ears. Wow! And it's in three parts and you can read that and it will give you a great overview of the course and some of the things that we got to do.
0: All right. That's awesome. All right. So let's get into a, a few topics. And obviously, I, we have to talk pricing because that's probably one of your, your most, well, it is your most passionate topic. And how did you get on this mission of, of changing the pricing model within the industry?
1: That's a great question. When I left the Big 8, started my own firm. Up to that
0: time, everything I did because I I
1: had my own accounting practice when I was in high school. That's another long backstory. (laughs) I won't bore you with that, but I've been charging by the hour. I've been doing a timesheet. I told, I I sold time. I had my elevator pitch down. I started my own firm with another partner and realized that the billable hour was a crappy customer experience because I was studying outfits like Disney, like Nordstrom, like Neiman Marcus, like LL Bean, FedEx, These were at the time known as TQS leaders, total quality service. Today we would say customer experience. This was the pinnacle of customer service and I wanted to emulate them. And the pricing model didn't work. And I said, that's it. We're, we're moving to fixed prices. There's too much uncertainty, unpredictability, too many angry customer calls coming in saying, why didn't you tell me it was going to be this expensive? And my only answer was, I spent the time. Look right. at my timesheet. I spent the time. They don't care about the time. Right. And so, we dived in head first. There was nobody on the circuit talking about it. There were no books. There were no consultants. No. This is 1989. Yep. And we did it. And we made every mistake under the sun and we stuck with it because we thought it was the right thing to do. It was a customer service experience issue. It wasn't all the economics that I, that I talk about in my books later on and all the offering options and a value guarantee and all the other strategies that we put on top of that. We just did it because it was a better customer experience. And after running with it for about three or four years, we got rid of timesheets because, hey, if you're not billing by the hour, it's a completely superfluous data point. You don't need it anymore because you're not pricing by the hour. You don't need it. And our team members loved it. They didn't have to do timesheets in six-minute increments like they were prisoners. Yep. And I started teaching this to at California CPA Education Foundation, the Cal Society, in 1994. And then I wrote a book in 1998, and it, the book ended up selling 40,000 copies which was kind of interesting because it was a $150 book.
0: Oh, wow. All right. So is that what started? I mean, how long did you have the firm after this then? Or did you just go into, you know, let's consult on pricing now? I still stuck with practicing and
1: then started to teach and and then started working on the book. And when the book took off, I really had to make a decision. I was at the proverbial fork in the road, which path do I take? And as the Kiwi say in New Zealand, you can't sit between two bar stools. (laughs) <laughs> you gotta pick a lane. Um, <laughs> and so I sold my practice to my partner who still carries it on. okay, and hes still is, he's still in practice, and that was in two thousand and then I started Barrisage. And I wanted to get a group of people around me that were really smart, that were as evangelistic about this topic as I was that would be able to go out there and teach it or live it by example. A lot of the fellows in Barrisage are practicing fellows. They have their own firms, whether they're lawyers, ad agencies or accountants, whatever, they're practicing this every day. And, and um, I can honestly say that we have moved the needle tremendously yep. uh, since Verisage was founded. And although the billable hours death might not be within reach, yeah, it's definitely within sight.
0: Well, it's a discussion that comes up on this podcast all the time. I am a CPA, but I hated doing those timesheets. And, and I worked for other firms just for three years and then started my own. And I never did a timesheet when I started my own back in 91. So when I heard about you years ago and what you were doing, I'm like, yeah, that makes complete sense. So let, let's talk about the progression of it then from you know whatever it was back then, the fixed fee pricing to today, what you we mentioned at the beginning is the value 2.0 um, pricing.
1: The history, if you, if you look at our profession, first- thing you have to realize is the timesheet and the billable hour were not invented by accountants. Just like we didn't invent cost accounting, we didn't invent the timesheet and the billable hour. The lawyers did. And the first law firm to introduce both the billable hour and the timesheet simultaneously was in 1919 in a Boston, Massachusetts law firm by the gentleman of the name of Reginald Hebrew Smith. Wow! Uh, you could kind of call him the father of the timesheet. Now, he, where he get the idea? Well, he was Harvard educated, and he was heavily influenced by the zeitgeist of the time, which was the scientific management revolution of Frederick Winslow Taylor. You know, the time and motion guy. Okay, he was a complete fraud, by the way. <laughs> uh, scholars have destroyed his work. He had a 40% fudge factor, built it. None of his studies could be replicated. Complete other fraud. Wow. But he had amazing influence on the culture. And this Smith guy picked up on it. So we didn't start billing by the hour until the 60s, 70s. Basically, when the computer came around and we figured out, hey, we can we can just enter a timesheet into a computer and spit out a bill, okay. um, lawyers really started doing it in the 50s. So they had a good 20-year jump on us. Heber Smith had a big jump on everybody. He was kind of a pioneer of his day. Billable hours, pricing the inputs. How much effort? How much time do we spend? And then we go into this hybrid thing where we get into fixed prices. And fixed prices says, okay, I'm going to do a scope of work for you. I'm going to do an audit tax return, you know, whatever. And I'm going to give you a certain set of deliverables and we're going to put a fixed price around it. Now I call it a hybrid because that's not really value pricing because what a lot of firms do when they fix a price is they estimate the number of hours in advance, right. tack on a premium or a you know, fudge factor and then fix it. It's still better than hourly billing, but that's pricing the outputs value pricing comes along especially with with the books and the way i taught it and the way we teach it is you price the customer you're not pricing the deliverables the output you're pricing the customer because value is subjective and every customer has different valuation and you want to understand what the impact of your services are going to be so you price the customer Now the subscription economy is coming along and it's a tsunami. I mean, all you have to do is look out the window and look at the market. In five years time, Zoe, the the, uh, CEO and founder of Zora, which is a subscription software platform, runs subscription businesses. He says, in five years, we won't own anything. We'll subscribe to everything. Now, I don't buy it, (laughs) but I will say this. In five years, we will have the option of subscribing to everything. And whether or not your firm does anything with this, it's gonna have to deal with it because the competition is. And subscription is a a much better customer experience. It's frictionless. It's got convenience built in. It's got innovation baked into it. It's got an insurance component. Hey, they're gonna take care of anything that goes wrong. No matter what it is, service or product, uh, my, co- my co-host Ed Kless subscribes to a vacuum cleaner from Roomba and it, it it does everything. It sends him the parts. It knows when the bag needs emptying. It knows when the bag, when he's out of bags, sends him everything that he little brushes and all the little parts. It's not on his radar anymore, right? The vacuum cleaner just cleans his house. And, the value of that transaction or that monthly subscription is much greater than selling him one vacuum cleaner. So we're moving to a world that's based not on transactions. It's based on relations and the subscription model puts the relationship at the center of the business model. It's a completely different business model than value pricing.
0: So that when, when you were talking about that, I was thinking everything, five years, everything. So I'm currently sitting in an Airbnb. So I started thinking, okay, Am I no longer going to have a house? Am I going Is Airbnb going to come out with a subscription pricing where I can just go anywhere, anytime, and I can, I mean, it's possible, I, I suppose, right? There's,
1: there's an outfit out there called Rome where you can subscribe to a home in something like, I don't know, 30 countries or something. And you can just, if you're a digital nomad and you just yep. kind of wander around, you can just keep subscribing. Airbnb has longer term plans. Yep because they're figuring out digital nomads just want to park like you have for a while and work and work remote, whatever. So I do think uh, we already see those options. You can subscribe to a boat today. You can subscribe to diapers, firewood, beer of the month, wine of the month. We've we've had that for a long time, but you name it. I I can't keep up with everything that today in 12 cities, I can subscribe to Porsche called Porsche drive. And for for $3,500 a month, I have access to a fleet, I think it's either seven or nine different Porsche models, and I can change out as much as I want. I can say, hey, I've got, you know, guests coming this weekend, I need an SUV, they want to go wine tasting, take my convertible away and bring me an SUV. They'll white glove out an SUV wow. and white glove away my convertible. Everything is included except gas and tolls. They pay for everything, insurance, registration, they handle maintenance. Everything's white glove. Everything's concierge. You know, we'll just we'll come out to whatever your home, your office, wherever you are, swap out cars as much as you want. And here's the thing people say, Well, how's that different than buying a Porsche or leasing a Porsche? (laughs) It's not tied to a car. It's not you're subscribing to Porsche. It's a one to one relationship. And once you subscribe, they have all this data about you. They know where you drive. They know where you go. They know what your preferences are. They probably know what your entertainment preferences are because your kids are in the back watching DVDs or right. whatever, streaming. So they can constantly bake in innovation. And what what's astonishing about this program, it's been around now for like two and a half years, 80% of the people that have subscribed to Porsche drive are new to the brand. Ah. Uh. So here's my question: What are those people going to be driving for the rest of their lives? Yeah, Porsche, Porsche.
0: Yeah. All right. So, so then that if we equate that then to public accounting, so what we're saying is, it's you're going to have to explain this to me. But it's the relationship, it's the value, it's the, you know, they, it's the you are, and you said this earlier, the you you're you're not selling, you're building that relationship with that specific client and so how's this all is this where we come into valuation i'm gonna say it wrong again valuation pricing
1: well, 2.0 yeah um in so with value pricing 1.0 okay we price the customer
0: okay customer value there
1: pricing 2.0 the subscription now i'm just going to call it the subscription business model because it is a different business model as much as value pricing 1.0 was a different business model than either fixed fee or hourly billing. So the the subscription business model doesn't price the customer. It prices the relationship and people look at me and go, you're just playing semantical games. (laughs) You know, what are you talking about? What's the difference? It's actually quite a big difference because even with value pricing 2.0, if you think about it, it's still built around transactions. It's still built around a scope of work. Whereas with subscription, it moves over to the relationship. And what happens is the focus becomes the transformation of the customer. We're actually transforming the customer from where they are to where they want to be. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't use this language as CPAs, but we should, because if you think about what CPAs do every day, we're, we're like fish and water, We just, but we don't even know it. And I'm not just talking about one transformation. We do serial transformations over the life of our relationship with our customer. We help them retire sooner. We help them retirement plan. We help them buy their dream home, their dream second home. We help get their kids in college. We help plan their legacies. Mm -hmm. We do all these different types of transformations. But well, we don't use that language. We talk in terms of deliverables and hours yeah. and efforts and the, the subscription business model, even more so than value pricing forces you to focus on that relationship, make it frictionless, make it convenient, give the customer peace of mind. So my model for this Randy is when you look at concierge doctors and their baby cousins, direct primary care doctors these are general physicians that have gone off the grid they have they don't take insurance right they don't take Medicare they have a one-to-one relationship with their patient you subscribe to the practice the doctor and they basically tell you whatever you need that we're capable of doing under our roof because they're only general physicians so you're not going to get heart surgery you're not going to get cancer treatment you're still going to need insurance for that kind of stuff but for General things for a general physician, they usually can handle 60 to 80% of our health needs. You're covered. Yep. You're covered, period. I don't care what happens. I don't care how many times you plunge a knife into your palm and need stitches. You're covered. And they'll come to your house, they'll come to your office. They, the average physician in the United States has 3,400 patients. The average concierge doctor or uh, DPC doctor has somewhere between 50 and 600 maximum. So they always have capacity, always, always have capacity. They can spend more time with you. And so it's reduced burnout. It's still incredibly profitable. You start running these numbers, a couple hundred bucks a month, 600 patients, you figure it out. Mm -hmm. They don't need a large overhead. They don't need a large office. They don't have to have a bunch of medical coding and billers. And I'm thinking to myself, well, doctors and CPAs are the same. Doctors keep us physically healthy right. CPAs keep us financially healthy why can't I subscribe to a firm and that firm tells me whatever you need Bron you get audited you're covered you need a financial statement tomorrow because you're trying to buy your dream property we will do it whatever you need whatever you need no more oh how long is this gonna take oh we right. have to go to the department of paperwork and get a change order this is out of scope no no it's not it's no longer scope in scope out of scope it's covered not covered it's an insurance policy. It's convenient. It's peace of mind. It's frictionless. It's all built around the customer. There are no silos. This would this would crash silos in firms. There would be no tax department. I mean, you'd still have expertise. The customers at the center of the relationship, and that's all that matters is helping that customer with whatever they need that we're capable of doing. And. Pe- people say well this is like an all you can eat buffet how do i know i'm not going to get some you know fat slob to come in and pig out and and you know lose my shirt yeah. not going to happen with good client selection with good pricing and with good you know, staying in your lane, niching. In other words, I think this is much easier to do if you're a niche practice. There's only so many things they can do. And and there's only so many things the average CPA firm can do, no matter how much they talk about, oh, we're a full service firm, blah, blah, blah. It's all crap. They're not. How can you be a full service firm? You got 20 people working for you. Mm -hmm. There's no way you can be an expert in every industry. So the riches are in the niches, and that's true. So I think this, this model, if we really want to look at a model, it's the concierge doctors and the, and their baby cousin, the direct primary care, and and Randy, this model has been around since 1996. All right. So we're laggards here.
0: Yep. So so this is your now your mission is to get this out there to any firm that'll listen. I assume there's room
1: in the marketplace for lots of different business models. Paul Dunn and I right now are in the midst of writing a book, and it's based around the subscription business model. And it's going to be called times up. But, I mean, this is the ultimate death knell to the timesheet. There, there is no room for measuring time in a subscription business right. model. Right. The accounting's different. The KPIs are different. This blows out the timesheet. It just makes it absolutely superfluous. Even though people still argue with us, well, you would still need time to. No, you don't. <laughs> and, right. and, and by the way, just on the timesheet issue, because it's a big bone of contention, we have a survey out there now, a one-question survey, anonymous survey. Have you ever lied on your timesheet? Right. We know people fudge on their timesheet. Give me a break. I've been right. in this profession since 84, and we've all fudged on a timesheet. Right. But this just absolutely blows it up. And on the timesheet front, I'm really proud of the fact that Bain and company and McKinsey and company no longer do them. Now, I can't claim any credit for McKinsey dropping them, but I can claim some credit for Bain dropping them. All right. And that's, so when people tell me, well, it doesn't scale, you can only get rid of timesheets if you're a small firm. Really? Bain and company? Yeah. McKinsey and company? Really? Right. It's time for a new business model.
0: Yeah, it is. You, I mean, there's change happening everywhere in, in public counties, not uh, immune to it, and, and it needs to happen. And so some things I thought about when you were talking, but then you already mentioned it. Niche, I think, works really well with that because, yep. you know, you've got this super concentrated expertise and, and knowledge that you can share and and do that. And then the other thing I thought about is what about does this help solve the employee issue because everybody's having problems right now finding employees does it address that at all
1: i think it does um because it does a couple things and and we we've already got the empirical evidence from the medical profession right there's over 1700 dpc doctors now they're in all all 50 states except i think one or two Uh, so it's really grown tremendously i mean this has been a massive movement in the last six years what we see is, you know, there's a high burnout rate among doctors, doctors, uh-huh. especially GPs. That's why nobody goes into GP; They go into specialties, right? Anesthesiology. There's a, in fact, there's an acronym. They call it the road to, I forget, but, it, but it's the five specialties people pick instead of being a GP. So there's a massive GP shortage, but the DPC docs, they're not burnt out. Why? They have fewer patients. Right?
0: That's what I was thinking.
1: This is the solution. I I think one of the reasons people, and I don't think people burn out of our profession. I don't buy that term. I I did. Well, (laughs) I did too, but I don't think you, I don't think you burned out. Okay. I think you rusted out. Yeah. And there's a difference. It's doing the same thing over and over. It's not being challenged enough. It you know you pick up a work paper and you and you start it and you realize oh my god I did this on the exact same day last year you know same as last year type of stuff right yep. You're just not growing, and that's a function of having too many customers. Every firm has too many customers, and that's crazy. That's because none of us became a and this is why I love the concierge doctors and the and the uh, DPC docs. Why did you become a doctor in the first place? They ask to help people, right? How can I help people? If I have 3,400 patients Yeah, and I'm spending five minutes with each one of them, 60 times, 40 times a day, how can I get to know them as people and think of, and get really in-depth family history? Well, why did CPAs enter this profession? Just to help people. Yep. Now you could say, well, help businesses too. Okay. Help businesses, help people. But we can't do that if we have a thousand customers, there's no way. And, And if you think about even vp 10 to some extent, we pay lip service to the relationship. I know we say it's a relationship business, but here's the thing. When you look at the business model, what are we monetizing? Transactions. Right. Subscription model changes that. And it changes it with the right incentives and it changes that the right way. So we're really living, our calling. This is why we entered this profession. We didn't enter this profession to build the most hours. We didn't enter this profession to have the most clients or the largest revenue. We entered this profession to make an impact on people's lives. And we can do that if we have fewer customers.
0: And you build those relationships and it's more satisfying because you're seeing what's happening to these individual individuals or businesses and you're affecting it. And And it's not, yeah, I can see that. All right, you got me, you're getting me excited here. I still don't, you you, you know, half the stuff you say I still have to absorb because it's- <laughs> it, it, um,
1: I know but. this is radical stuff. I I know, I've, I've been swimming in it for a long time. But yeah. yeah, I know it sounds radical.
0: For our business, Trimerit, we've been, I think, value billing since day one, 15 years ago, and we've done that from the beginning. So, so I, I kind of get that. It's just that whole subscription. In my mind, I'm trying to figure out, as a niche business that does specialty tax, can we do subscription modeling? And I knew you were going to say that. I just don't see that. I don't know the structure of that.
1: Um, Yeah. You have to think through your pricing tiers. I'll give you a couple, I'll give you an example of um, an ERP software company uh, went to subscription and They're the leading software company for fashion brands. So small companies that sell fashion across different platforms, maybe Amazon, maybe Shopify, different platforms. And when they started, they tried to price the customer. And that's very difficult to do with subscription. It can be done if you have very few customers, but if you want to scale like these guys did and get hundreds or thousands of customers you kind of have to put out a menu you kind of have to put out three or four options and let people decide and rather than pricing the customer what it led to was a paradox of choice they'd give the customer you know 40 different things they could choose from and have different permutations and it led to the paradox of choice even when the customer did make a choice always in the back of their mind they were doubtful whether they made the best choice and that, that's something you don't want a customer to feel. That's a crappy customer experience. Always to be second guessing that, you know, the level you're at. Right. So they said, no, no, we're not going to do this anymore. This isn't working for us. It's too complicated. What we're going to do is we're going to segment our customers by the stage of growth they're in. Are they a startup? Are they, you know, coming onto their own? And, and some of this can be determined by how many platforms they sell on, how much sophistication they need in their accounting. Do they need, you know, Intuit QuickBooks to run inventory because in the startup phase, they probably don't, but in a later phase, they probably do. So they did a really good job. The company's name, by the way, is AIMS, A-I-M-S 360. And if you go look on their website, you'll see their pricing tiers based upon the type of entity and in, in its, its phase in the growth cycle. And I think that's a very interesting way for accountants to think about it. And look, if an accounting firm has individuals and business clients, it can have three options for the individuals and it can have three options for the business clients. So there, you can still have options, you can still do tiered pricing, but it's probably going to be something you're able to post on your website. Unlike value pricing, where you have to price the customer, right? So you can't post the price. Menu pricing is, you know, we all drive up to McDonald's and pay the same price. Value pricing is if McDonald's came out and interviewed you and right. tried to figure out how hungry you were right. before they priced the Happy Meal.
0: All right. So this is what I, this is the question that was running through my head that you just answered for the most part with the, the subscription pricing. Then it's still not one size fits all. No. Okay. It could be.
1: If you look at some of the DPC docs, they have just one option. Now they might base it on age. So if you're older, okay. you might pay a little bit more. They tier it that way. Right. Pediatrician DPC docs do the same, actually the younger you are, the more expensive it is right. because they have to give you all these inoculations and see you more often and your infections, all that kind of stuff. But I, I, I think you can do three options.
0: Okay. So, so it's still, it's a subscription with. Tier is that the right word? Tier yep, pricing. Tiers. Yep. And then also within that, it's different for a ten forty client, obviously, than it is for a you know a, right. a C corporate Okay, but it's all I, right. I it's starting to sink in. I'm getting there. I think it's awesome. I love it. I like I said from the beginning. I always hated timesheets. I think CPAs have always undervalued their services as well, maybe probably because of the hour. I actually think they undervalue their businesses yeah, as well. I think that's, do. Uh, that's an issue I think is out there.
1: On our radio show, we've done lots of different shows on subscription. We've talked to some of the best-selling authors in the space, like Teenzo of like John Warlow, who wrote the book called The Automatic Customer. And Warlow, he also wrote a great book called Built to Sell. So he's heavily involved in helping companies sell businesses across all different types of sectors. And he's also a big proponent of subscription. And he's told us, he said, we are seeing multiples in the professional firm space, not one time revenue or one and a quarter, or even I've seen two and I've seen three right. with value pricing firms, really subscription firms, five to seven. Wow. And even higher, he says, now this is the market screaming at companies will value you more if you have annual recurring revenue. Mm -hmm. The sad thing is CPAs do have annual recurring revenue. I mean, the big thing about subscription is you've got to offer recurring value. It's all based on recurring value. And, And by the way, that has to continuously be increasing. Just the way Amazon constantly throws more benefits at us. If we're prime members, right? They drop new series of episodes. You notice your price doesn't change every time they drop a new service.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I thought that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's because they're using the portfolio approach, but they have to bake in that innovation and. CPA firms are going to have to do the same thing with subscription. If you get into wealth planning, you're going to have to make that available. Now, maybe you do that in a separate tier, but you you know you're going to have to bake in some some new services yep. as part of the as part of the model. But it, you're going to end up with a firm that is far more desirable to purchase at a much higher price than one times multiple. Yep. So you're building something that's more valuable, and that needs to enter into the calculus
0: as well. The whole multiples of uh, valuation, everything just got me thinking, because this is a topic that's come up uh, a few times recently with me. And, and in fact, I think Blake Oliver, you mentioned earlier, was uh, somebody I was discussing this with. Is the business model of the partnership of a CPA firm something that needs to change? And and would this play into that? Maybe not. But just in general, is the business model need to be different? I, yeah, the
1: structure, uh, the legal structure, yes. the ownership structure, economics um, you know, I've always hated the, the partnership model, Randy. I mean, the, the problem with the partnership model is it's a consensus model. It's not a leadership model. And, um, you know, Margaret Thatcher used to say the negation of of uh, leadership is consensus.
0: Okay. the absence <laughs>
1: of leadership. And that's what we see in partnerships. I think it's one of the reasons why. CPA firms are so slow to innovate, whether it's moving from hourly to value pricing or getting rid of the timesheet or adopting cloud technologies. Right. It took the professional a long time to do that. Yep. And it's a partnership model. You know, I'm sitting around a table with uh, 15 partners and you'll throw out an idea, Hey, I think we should get rid of the timesheet or I think we should do this, or I think we should do that. All it takes is one partner, to say, oh, you know, no, we tried that during the Rutherford B. Hayes administration, and it didn't work. <laughs> and the idea dies. Partnerships are where good ideas go to die.
0: No, because you've got this. We're set up. I mean, everybody, there's, there's this funnel of people coming up, and then they're in leadership. And then once you're up here, you don't want to change because that's the way it's always been.
1: You know, at one time, there were something like 316 department stores. And then, of course, you know, Sears was a big player. But then Walmart came out, and then of course this little guy from Bentonville, Arkansas had a different idea, yep. and it wasn't even on Sears internal memos. Walmart wasn't even on their radar screen, hmm. and all of a sudden they they just crush everything in their wake. And this company called Dayton Hudson, uh, you know, kind of like Macy's, whatever, they're a big player in the space. But they did something. They said, you know what? With this new startup, Walmart and Kmart. We can't continue to do what we're doing. They spun out a new entity with a completely different business model. They called it target.
0: (laughs) Amazing. But that's a
1: rare, rare exception that a company has the foresight to do something that disruptive. But if you want true innovation, spin out a new business and cannibalize the old one. Yep. That's awesome. Well,
0: uh, Ron, it's time to wrap up. I could go on forever. I appreciate the conversation. If anybody wants to get further educated on B 2.0 or subscription pricing, how can they find out more about it? Where can they look you up? Where can they get a hold of you? Best
1: place is com, And up there, if you go, we have uh, shows uh, by category. So our, we have Ron and Ed's favorite show or shows by category, I think it is. And one of the drop downs is subscription business model. And you'll see all the shows that we've done on subscription, all the interviews with the the four leading authors, or they can find me on LinkedIn. I'm one of the influencers, as you mentioned, so they can follow me there. They can also email me. I'm happy to talk to our colleagues, uh, Ron at verisage.com. So they can email me. I'm also on Twitter at Ronald Baker. And I'm happy to continue the conversation with people because I think the profession's at another hinge point, you know, pivot point in history where we're going to see new business models. We're already seeing some CPA firms adopt this model. It's already out there. Yep. And it's going to keep coming and whether or not you do anything with it, you're going to be affected
0: by it. I agree. I agree completely. And I think everybody do not ignore it for sure. Well, Ron, thank you. I appreciate the conversation. This is something I've been uh, uh, hoping to do for a couple of years and you were very gracious. I just emailed you last week and, and you set up time right away. So I appreciate that. Thank you, Randy. It was great to chat with you. Thank you for joining us today. And you can find all the links and show notes for today's episode, as well as more about Trimerit at theuniquecpa.com. Remember to subscribe and join us for our next episode where we'll be going beyond compliance into forging new pathways of delivering value to clients, diversifying your revenue streams, and leading-edge management techniques and styles. This has been a production of Twin Flame Studios.